Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Black in Boston and Beyond. I'm Hedy B. Williams, your host and the current director of the Trotter Institute at UMass Boston. Today on Black in Boston and Beyond, we have Councilwoman Tanya Anderson, and I want to welcome you to the show, Councilwoman. Thank you so much, Hedy, for having me here. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to that conversation. Yes, I I find you to be just a a fascinating and powerful Black woman in the city of Boston. And I want to ensure that your story is is shared really with Boston and beyond. And that's really the focus of our show today is just having you tell us a little bit about your personal professional biography and entry into politics, community, culture, and social justice. Tell us a little bit about your background, Councilwoman. Tanya is good. I am an African immigrant. I was born in West Africa, Cape Verde, immigrated here at the age of 10, straight to Roxbury, uh, my favorite place in the whole world, and grew up there. I got acclimated with the environment. My mom didn't register me to school right away, so I had to make friends. The Latino population in the projects at Academy Homes and both the African-American population really opened up their arms. So I ended up learning Spanish before learning English. And with whatever, you know, and of course, you know, friends and kids would teach me one word at a time in English, ended up starting to work at a nonprofit organization at on Blue Hill Ave, actually, in Roxbury, Roxbury Multi-Service Center, where I would be a peer leader as a uh, of teaching um, kids about sexual assault, teens, educating teens about sexual assault. By default, I would just stay in that field of public health and mental health. And after 27 years in that, I gave it a little break. I would end up opening a boutique, taught myself a little bit of sewing to grow a niche in my business. I just wanted to do something separate from the field. Imagine at 13 and going on 27 years in the same field of public health, it's intense. I end up working, becoming a Main Street's director, learning a lot about economic development in the Dorchester area and while running my business. And then the seat open, I had been an undocumented immigrant for most of my life here in America, but I had just applied for my citizenship, finally becoming qualified. And so 2019, I became a citizen, a U.S. citizen. 2020, I would run for office. 2021, got inaugurated as the first Muslim American and African immigrant elected in Boston. It's a fascinating story. And I think at the same time, it's the story of America. America was founded by immigrants. And we find that these stories are become uniquely American, although we have all of our you know, distinct ethnic backgrounds and so forth. It's just a a really wonderful story. Can you tell us a little bit about the Cape Verdean community? It's large and growing in Boston. And I'm wondering your thoughts on how many, you know, why that community is, is growing and why do you think so many Cape Verdeans relocate to Boston in particular? Why not, you know, another city, another state? Is there something particular do you think about Boston that attracts this community? Yeah, thanks for asking. There's conversations about 
whether it was around late 1700 or early 1800s when Cape Verdeans would assimilate to or a white passing identity or assimilate to the culture here and would travel or migrate from Cape Verde or immigrate from Cape Verde to here on whaling ships for jobs. Cape Verde, as you know, was discovered around, I think it was something like 1458, something like that, and would become the Atlantic slave trade port for all of slave trade between the West and Africa. And I think that history then became more solidified or propelled through uh, piracy that occurred in Cape Verde. Every 10 islands, Cape Verde would suffer a famine. And thereafter, pirates would come in because if you conquered the port, you dominated the slave trade at the time. And so it became a land of people coming and going. And so Cape Verdeans, in Cape Verde, there are only or less than 500,000 Cape Verdeans. And around the world, I think we are just a little tiny bit over 2 million. And so we could probably argue that New England has more Cape Verdeans than Cape Verde itself. So I think that's why just sort of that tradition of looking for jobs, immigrating, going back and forth and ships coming in and out and folks looking for a better life. Yes, the large, that's a good point, the large uh, Cape Verdean diaspora, right? That's so uh, complex and, and global uh, diaspora people. How does this community shape the culture of Boston, right? What impact has this community in particular had on, on the society and culture of Boston? I think more Cape Verdeans have integrated more with the working class and the tradition is to come here and find a better life. So hard work is the way of the immigrants, right? So um, I think Cape Verdean community being a people that pride ourselves in, in hard work, we've really come here and hopefully have added to, you know, the array of music and culture and beauty and food and traditions. But again, I think mostly in labor, just being a part of like a good representation in the working class. You also talked about your life as a, a business owner. And I want us to talk about that. We'll get to that question soon. But you also mentioned your faith. And how's your faith shaped your worldview? You know, one of the things that attracted me to Islam was the fact that it was super universal, but super practical. The idea that as a woman, that I had the autonomy for what I wanted to do or control over my own money or whether I wanted to work or career choices or my way of life. And that there was no compulsion in religion that you are credited for what you truly intend in your heart. So that by any means that if a culture or cultural norms were forcing a person with their religion or actions with a, a certain through a certain religion or trying to justify it or so that you didn't you you weren't credited for it because it's not something that's coming from your heart. So naturally, you know, it felt like something that was not oppressive and that women were not subjugated to abuse or that we didn't have to be meek as the media portrays. A religion that accepted all people a religion that really appreciates economic mobility and a religion that gave you that gives you choice and again an autonomy so 
for that, I appreciate it. And also in the ways that it connects to everything that we do that, you know, technically we say it's not a religion, it's a way of life because it connects with our health. We place a lot of emphasis in what we eat and how we eat, what we drink, how we behave and how we treat people. But and then again, that we're all humans and that we should be forgiving and patient with one another in our evolutionary process. Of course, that hopefully is what I want to translate in my everyday behavior. But again, I'm human and not only do I have to be forgiving to people, but to myself when I'm I'm less than that. You know, I think you have demonstrated in many ways. I mean, you've lived a life of service, you know, in terms of not just being a businesswoman, but also in the field of uh, social work and social justice activism, and also as an advocate of women's rights in Boston. Tell us a little bit about that. I mean, I haven't said this, but I always say this in my speeches or when I'm talking public speeches. I've had great mentors. I've been very fortunate, thank God. We say, alhamdulillah, all praise due to God, that I've had the blessings to have a lot of beautiful capable, intelligent Black women around who have surrounded me and nurtured me and loved me. So my first job began with a Black woman, uh, Barbara Bullett, God rest her soul. And she mentored me. And from there, I would meet, you know, Miss Claudia Reed, who is, you know, in my advisory council and works with me. I would watch, you know, folks like Diane Wilkerson. I would look at the Black women, um, Charlotte Go Ritchie, Linda Dorsina Fori, Marisa Floor. I would look at all of the Black examples, my own mother, people around me, and the level of competence, the level of qualification that a Black woman brings to any environment, to any dynamic, is unmatched. And I always say, and I hope with all due respect and kindly, I hope that people understand this from where I'm coming from. There are no better qualifiers. There are no better qualified people like the Black woman to change the world. So that's right. I have, Amen. I have to be the advocate for that. I have to push and fight for them, fight for us. And if Black women are okay, all human beings are okay. Yes, indeed. We need community. We need to support one another. And because there's so many forces against us as we live this, you know, life of the double bind of racism and sexism. It, it's very well said, I think, here. So tell us a little bit. So as I understand it, you've been a foster mother to 17 children and have your own uh, biological children as well. Tell us about this journey and this story. What an amazing you know, oh, man. thing. You know, my mom was one of those immigrants who were was seeking a better life as well. At 23, she had three children in Cape Verde. Boy, uh, what is this? 1984 or five. She would travel to America. And my uncle, the oldest that became the patriarch, he wasn't the oldest, but who, the one that became a patriarch, he was only 15. Mm. And he was a closeted gay man who would suppress his own, you know, dreams to remain in Cape Verde in, that, in those times when it wasn't safe to come out or talk about it. And he would raise myself and my siblings and my grandmother, his younger siblings, and whatever friend of the family and their children and people that we just added on to the house. And I remember growing up in this 
big house with a lot of children. And I remember my uncle, I remember him on the porch talking about one day I'll go to America and life will change and things will be better. And I remember him crying when it rained and I remember him singing. And then to reflect all the way to a time when he was 40 years old coming out for the first time as a gay man, I reflect on the fact that he sacrificed so much to raise all of these children that weren't his. And so when I had my own children and my life was fairly stable um, after I got my green card, not a citizen, but a green card, I felt so grateful for having a home and being finally, you know, a legal resident. And I would look at my children and understand, you know, how happy they were. And, and I love being a mom. So I felt like it was something that we could share our, our home and our environment and our love with others. And because of what my uncle taught me. And so I thought it was the right thing at the, at the time to do. That is an amazing story. If someone listening to the show wanted to become a foster parent, do you have any um, information about how that person would go about entering the process? Absolutely. So there are two different types of foster parents. You can become a therapeutic like specialist, or which is called an intensive foster home, or you can be a regular foster home. So one is just more therapeutic and deals with children with more trauma. And one, you can go directly to DCF and it'll be a training. And it's, you know, it's less, it's not, it's a short training. It's just a couple of months. And then the other, you would reach out to uh, it used to be called Dare, and I'm sorry, I forget. I f- I forget the name, the new name that they got. But Home for Little Wonders, or there are different types of organizations that does this. But DCF should also guide you to these agencies. Once you get the training and become certified, then they do what's called, you know, like um, to actually inspect your home, and that takes about a couple of weeks to make sure that everything is safe and you know you have everything together and the bedroom and the protocols in place. And then you start going through files and you can select, you can say, you know, for example, I, I prioritize black boys because I knew that they were the most at risk, but you can prioritize. You can say, look, I'm, I'm a Muslim, you know, woman. And I want to, I know that there's a, there's a need for Muslim kids, you know, for households of uh, Muslim homes, or you can say, I prefer Latino kids or whatever. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that information with us. Now let's turn to community culture and politics and talk a little bit about your own social justice work in the city and what led you to get involved in politics. You know, what has been your engagement with the Black community in Boston and Roxbury, um, programs and initiatives you want to share with us today? Yeah. So as I, started running for office, I would think about the policies that I believed were most needed to make a, a, a real impact in District 7. And the number one priority that came up was housing. The second being, of course, people would say gun violence. And the third was education and economic development. And of course, it's all, you know, array of list of things. So in thinking about how to approach this in a holistic way, I decided to start putting, you know, doing surveys and I would develop a advisory council that would advise me on how to move forward with on these policies. Like the late brother Chuck Turner, he had a round table. Once I did that, I put together the leaders and stakeholders in one in one place 
then I was automatically connected to the civic associations. And we started doing a lot of research and work. We collaborated with resources like universities and organizations and advocates and community people to look at, you know, the inventory in Roxbury. We did an asset mapping study. Shout out to Professor Song. She is an architect and urban design professor at Northeastern who collaborated with our office and did an anti-displacement studio and also asset mapping study. We assessed Roxbury and South End and uh, Grove Hall and realized the deficits by way of understanding what the assets were. From there, with the advisory council and community, we put together a District 7 action plan. And I wanted this to be very measurable because we understood that if there weren't metrics to be to measure the progress and you know we weren't doing any any real work and the action plan then encompassed economic mobility by way of revitalizing corridors and business districts so I passed a resolution to do an R corridor and our mayor agreed to uh, support it with ARPA funds 1.5 million the RFI is out now so it's going to be starting soon housing I filed, then worked with the administration on creating a rent-to-own pilot program in Roxbury, and that's also in the process of uh, RFP. Environmental justice, we are doing placemaking projects where we're looking at parcels to create more open space, more green spaces, but also ways of activating and adding trees to our environment. And then, of course, there are other policies that I file to support these projects and initiatives. And then um, with civic engagement, I created a process to do listening sessions, whether it's workshops or trainings or different ways of civic engagement. On a weekly basis, I meet with community and hear from them. And they're thematic. They're on budget or civic engagement or learning about, you know, voting and things like that. With education, we created a program that high school students could be hired in a partnership with SuccessLink. And while they get paid, we do civic engagement classes with them once a week, but the rest of the time, they just have to do their homework and we provide a tutor and they get paid for their time. Uh, So it's like getting paid for homework for homework time. And there are other initiatives, of course, for education. And of course, there's so much more and I want to be respectful that I'm going on and on at this point. There are so much more projects that we're doing, exciting things, and I'm looking forward to a way to truly revitalize Roxbury and look at how we can improve the economy and support folks with fighting housing displacement, commercial displacement, as well as climate displacement, and figure out how we can bring our Black folks back to District 7. No, I I think it's a well-designed plan, and the idea that you're working collaboratively with the community through an advisory board and just um, getting many, many voices involved and helping you sort of improve the region and across so many different areas too, education, environment, housing. It's very ambitious. And I'm wondering, as you have entered politics, you know, has your view of politics, has it changed? Has you become, you know, more jaded and less optimistic? Or do you, have you been able to retain your optimism with all that you want to do? I think I am more in favor of politics now, which mm. is strange. 
I will tell you that politics is exactly what people imagine or what they see in the movies. (laughs) (laughs) As contrived and crazy and egotistical and emotional and high school and drama and pettiness. Absolutely. But also, and there's no difference between politics today and politics like, you know, years ago, uh, Mm -hmm. decades ago, where the demographics look different. I think what happens is if you want to evolve and become impactful, you start learning that politics takes a bad connotation, but politics is, in in my interpretation, a mechanism by which you can use your emotional intelligence to develop relationships, to diplomatically come to accords on an exchange that benefits all people, both sides. And so as transactional as that sounds, it is. As long as hopefully you are intersecting self-preservation and serving in a way that's healthy, You have to keep your seat in order to solidify and build continuity on the work that you're doing, but you also have to serve the people. And does that mean that you've compromised your moral compass to get certain things done in the exchange? And so I think that you can do it without compromising your compass, without, you know, selling out or being bought. As you make mistakes, the optics that you have to put on is the pressure Because especially now in the days of social media and cameras, everyone wants to say something about you. And it's just about, you know, clickbaiting. It's not real. What's real is when you get to pass policies that transforms people's lives in a good way. That's what I'm looking forward to. If you focus on that, if you say, this is bigger than me, there is so much work to be done. And sometimes I'm going to make decisions that doesn't necessarily give me everything that I need or 100% of what my community uh, needs from this. But tomorrow is my day. And it just it's, it's a matter of taking turns on who gets small wins until you start you know, chipping away at the problem, until you get to a solution. I think that was well said. And as we wrap things up today, I want to end with this question. And really two questions. One question is, what do you see as the greatest challenge facing the Black community in Boston at the present? And the second part of that question is, what is the most immediate goal that you have maybe in helping to to confront that greatest challenge? I hope I don't sound like I'm, you know, downplaying the problem by giving you a very microcosm of what I've done to start as a goal to start chipping away the problem. But the problem, I believe, is that the status quo, the Anglo culture of Boston has prevailed to a point where everything has a white backdrop. We've not figured out solutions or ways to to overcome that to the point where we've been able to be divided and conquered. This, I think, is a residual, of course, or the aftermath of years, centuries of oppression. But when you think about it, we're brand new people. We're very young in evolution. Because if you think about it, if the starting point is that you get an education and a job, we are very brand new. And that means then that we 
are resilient, but not only that, but that we learn very, 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 very fast. So I would say we have so much to celebrate because we've accomplished so much, yet the residuals of our long years of oppression allows us to be a bit deprived in our ways of not speaking out against oppression in this city. Boston is severely systemically racist and one of the most richest, if not the richest, one of the most richest cities in the country. We are financial health is optimum, and yet we don't invest in Black social determinants of health to curve these issues that fight against systemic oppression and racist structures. And Black people, when we hold jobs and high positions, we understand that it's a very fragile platform, so we don't necessarily shake things up too much. And we have to find these ways of being diplomatic and building these relationships and networks to maintain our seats and maintain our positions, maintain our jobs so we can feed our families. And so Black people, be graceful to one another, be patient, extend Olive Branch every single time to a Black person, to any marginalized people, to any marginalized people when they're going through it, because it's hard. But at the same time that we come together and we begin to really think about how we can build strength and forces together so that we can continue to do what is right for everybody. Yeah, I think it's it's so important to say that because Boston, the Black community in Boston is so complex because it includes so many different ethnicities within. And it's not a monolith, but we can't afford to be fighting within you know, our community, we really need to, as you said, you know, come together and uh, and work together to achieve some of these important aspects of your platform, housing, health, education. I want to thank you so much for being a guest with me today on Black in Boston and beyond, uh, Councilwoman. I, I, I really wish you uh, luck with all of your plans, and it's very ambitious but I'm excited uh, to see what you're able to accomplish um, in the city of Boston for the Black community. Thank you. Thank you so much. I didn't answer that I built an app, the First District app, to begin to organize my district as a way of bringing us together. Yes, technology. And so many of the young <laughs> people, you know, that's where they are. You have to meet them where they are. And if they are the next generation of voters, of politicians... I think that's a point uh, well made about how do we collaborate and bring communities together, you know, through technology. Thank you so very much. You've been too kind to me in this interview. I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity. Thank you so much for joining me today. 